me say a word about introduction, first of all, uh, to the whole course as a kind of an overview. Psalm 23 is a psalm that we often look at uh, when we're facing different kinds of trials and distresses. It is the shepherd's song. It's the song that reminds us of God's pastoral care. Our covenant God is so faithful, so kind and good to his people, that no matter what circumstances we face, no matter what kind of trials and distresses, we can always look to him. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall lack nothing. And then it goes on to explain the kinds of situations we find ourselves in and the way in which God is our faithful shepherd who cares for us. And in the fourth verse of that psalm, we read about the comfort of God's rod and his staff. The comfort of God's rod and staff. Now, I think you've all seen enough biblical epics on television or at the movies that you have an idea what a shepherd's crook looks like, and maybe a vague idea anyway of what a shepherd used his, his rod and staff for. Certainly, they are instruments that he might use in protecting the flock from outside dangers and threats. If animals come, predators that are seeking to destroy the flock, that is a weapon that the shepherd can use to drive off uh, invading enemies, uh, threatening uh, dangers to the flock. But there's also in that reference to the rod and the staff an allusion to God's uh, discipline, the fact that he uses that rod also to move the sheep along or to hook the sheep and to pull them back again. Uh, and so it's not only protection but also discipline. Now I would uh, bet, if I was a betting man, that we all find God's protecting care comforting. But I also suspect that many of us don't find God's disciplinary care very comforting, at least not when we're the object of that disciplinary care. But you see, the way the Bible teaches us about our own nature, both as sinners and as sheep, it's not just outside dangers, outside threats that are problems for the church. Sometimes we become the problem. We become the danger to ourselves or to our brothers and sisters within the flock, which is a local church. Sometimes our own laziness becomes a problem to our spiritual growth. Or if we are in positions of leadership over families and elsewhere, our laziness, our neglect, our procrastination becomes a spiritual threat to our children or to our wives or to those whom we have some responsibility for. We have to wrestle with unbelief regularly as a, content, a constant problem in the Christian life. We get willful and stubborn. We have those times when we say, yes, Lord, I know what you want. I know it's good for me, but I'm not going to do it. And we dig in our heels, and in stubbornness we rebel against God. So there are lots of times when the shepherd's crook needs to be used on us to stir us up if we're laying there and sleeping in spiritually like a lazy sheep and we need a nudge to get up and get going or if we're wandering off and need to be hooked and dragged and pulled back again so that we can continue to go forward. But that's no less an expression of God's comfortable and encouraging pastoral care than the fact that when the wolf is outside and ready to rip the flock to shreds, the shepherd can use that staff, that rod, to drive the enemy away. And so I've taken from the authorized version of Psalm 23, this title for the series, Thy Rod and Thy Staff, They Comfort Me. And I hope that that will give us a particular perspective on church discipline, because whatever else we learn this week, I hope that you will go away at the end of the week 
being encouraged by the fact that one of the high privileges of being a member of the body of Christ is to enjoy the comfort of God's rod and staff when it is used on you to discipline you unto holiness, to move you forward in spiritual growth and maturity and fruitfulness. I hope you will be encouraged by what we learned this week, not only in how to carry out the process of church discipline informally and formally, but also that you will be encouraged that it's possible to have access to this great privilege. Again, I, I, uh, I'm inclined to think that when church members think of what's great about being a part of the body of Christ, being subject to the Lord's discipline is not up on the top of the list. may not even occur to people on the top of the list. Oh, the church is friendly. Oh, the people love me. Oh, the people ask questions about my concerns for my life. Those are all up on top of our list. Maybe I like the preaching, or maybe I like the Sunday school teaching, or maybe I like the fellowship in the church, or something else. But usually we're way down the list before we like the fact that when we are out of line, God comes to us through a brother, or through an elder, or sometimes directly and personally as he intervenes providentially in our life. We are the people of God's pasture. We are the sheep of his right hand. And therefore, it's a comfort to know his discipline, his care in our lives. It's also, church discipline, a wonderful expression of our common life, of that koinonia. One of the great privileges that it is to share in the life of the people of God is to be able to freely give and freely receive that restorative discipline that God has ordained for his church. But like other great privileges of the faith, other great privileges of being part of the body of Christ, it's subject to the attack of Satan. Because it is so good for you, Satan hates it with a raging passion. And he will do everything he can do to divide us from that privilege, to get us to draw back. And that attack by Satan can manifest itself in sinful abuse of church discipline. And many of us have heard about that. Some of us perhaps have experienced miscarriages of church discipline within the church of God. And so we think, well, you know, that, that was bad. That was a terrible experience. I didn't like it. It wasn't good for the church. And therefore, better not to exercise church discipline than to fall into that kind of abuse. But I would remind you that the gospel of free and sovereign grace is also subject to abuse and perversion and corruption. And yet we wouldn't say, let's abandon the gospel because it's too likely to be abused by someone. God forbid. We can't abandon the good gift of God's discipline because it is sometimes abused. Neglect will be detrimental to all of us in our spiritual growth. So wherever you find yourself here at the beginning of this week with respect to your attitude as well as your practice of church discipline, I hope you'll grow in an appreciation for it as the week goes on. And maybe by the end of the week, we can even delight together in this great privilege that God has given. Maybe it'll give us goosebumps to think about the fact that God will come to us with his rod and staff to discipline us, to correct us, and to lead us in the paths of everlasting life. There are, I think, some important reasons why we ought to consider this subject at this particular point. And I'd like to suggest five for you very briefly, and if you want to note them down, I left a spot in the outline, and if you don't, that's okay, just listen. Ever since the time of the Reformation, and this is the first one, the exercise of faithful discipline has been one of the identifying marks of the church. 
Calvin and those following Calvin said, you can tell the difference between the church and the world by three identifying marks. The first is the faithful preaching and ministry of the Word of God. The second is the correct biblical application of the sacraments to the life of the church. And the third is the careful biblical administration of discipline within the church. And so one of the things that distinguishes the church from the world is whether or not we practice discipline, whether or not we do it well, whether or not we do it with the right heart attitude, whether or not we do it effectively. You see, the church is characterized by just about all of the same problems that the world is. I, I would say it is characterized by all of the problems that the world faces and a whole bunch of extra ones that are unique to Christians. So the problems are there. But what distinguishes the church from the world, or ought to, is that within the church there is a means to fix things that are broken, a means of putting back together that which has been split apart. There is a way by which the church can deal with the problems that it faces in its own midst. Now, unbelievers don't realize that. They look at the world and they say, well, there's lying and cheating and stealing and lust and greed in the world. And sure enough, there it is in the church as well. So what's the difference? And if we have to say, well, yeah, that's out there in the world and it's here in the church and we can't do anything about it any more than you can do something about it, then the unbeliever's right. There isn't any difference between the church and the world. So one of the marks that identifies the church is discipline, which enables us to deal with the problems within the church in a way that the unbelieving world can never do. And that's why so many of us have found such healing in coming to Christ and becoming part of his body because we have found solutions to problems that we never found when we were in our unbelief living in the world. A second reason for a series like this arises out of the slogan, and I like the slogan, the Reformed Church is always reforming. Sometimes people think a Reformed Church is reformed, as if we had somehow arrived. But a Reformed Church, if it's true to the genius of Calvin and those who followed them, is always at work at reforming, refining, purifying, clarifying, applying the life of the Word of God among the people of God. And so as much as we may appreciate what God has done for the church that flows out of the Reformation over the last 400 plus years, there's a whole lot more to be done. There is ground that we have lost that we have to recoup, and there are frontiers that we need to push forward in our faithfulness and fruitfulness. And one of the means by which we can continue this reformation is church discipline. The third reason, I think, is the present neglect of effective and faithful church discipline in many churches. It is true that in recent years, certainly a few more books have been written on the subject. There's a little bit more talk about the subject, but I'm afraid that even among churches which claim to believe that church discipline is biblical, there still is a terrible neglect. I think there are a number of reasons for that, which I'm going to touch upon in one of the messages this week. But at this point, even a church like us, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, which has always claimed to believe in church discipline, isn't as effective in the practice of church discipline in a faithful and effective way as it ought to be. And since church discipline in many ways is the immune system for the body of Christ, the more our immune system becomes overloaded with toxins, the more weak we are and the more subject to succumbing to terrible diseases 
doctrinal diseases, as well as ethical diseases. I have grown over the last three years to love and hate my immune system because I'm told by the doctors that my problems with asthma are ultimately a problem with my immune system. It's too overloaded, and when too many things hit it all at the same time, I have an asthma attack and end up in the hospital. It's especially irritating when you find out that all of those little infections that you used to not even pay any attention to, you know, a little earache, no big deal. A couple of days, it'll go away. Take an aspirin. A little sore throat, scratchiness, you say, well, I'm not going to go down with that. My doctor said one time, he says, if you ever get an earache, if you ever get a sore throat, if you ever get a stomach ache, you come and see me because that will be enough to put your immune system over the edge. And that happened in January, and I ended up in the hospital because on New Year's Day, I had a little scratchy throat, and I thought, well, it'll be okay in a couple of days. Two days later at midnight, I was going to the emergency room. So I've become at least more aware of the condition of my immune system. And we as a body of Christ need to be aware of the condition of our immune system. And sometimes because of our sin and our tolerance of sin, we simply become so overloaded with toxins that anything that comes along will split the church or make the church unfruitful or make it lose its love for the gospel or even lose sight of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We are capable of all of those things if we don't heal ourselves by the means that God has made available through pastoral discipline. So that's an important reason. The neglect of it can mean the death of the church. And if you don't believe that, you just read the first two chapters of the book, or second and third chapters of the book of Revelation and see how those churches were in danger of succumbing to all kinds of diseases spiritually because their immune systems were breaking down. Discipline wasn't being exercised faithfully and effectively. Two other reasons, real quick. One is the present scandals that are so notoriously bringing shame upon the church in our day here in America, as well as upon the Lord and the gospel that we love and serve. I was uh, reflecting on the Spirit of God's words to the ancient people of God, the Jews, as Paul records them in Romans chapter 2 and thought uh, this is something that we ought to take to heart ourselves in our own behavior. Listen to what Paul says. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are born in the, uh, who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of the knowledge and truth. We just substitute because you, uh, you who call yourself an Orthodox Presbyterian, you rely on the Word of God, the Reformed faith, and brag about your relationship with God. If you know God's will and approve what is superior because you were instructed by the Word of God, and so on down the line, you then who teach others, you do not teach yourselves. Do you not teach yourselves? You who preach against stealing, do you not steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you, not, uh, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? 
As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. God's complaint against his ancient people was that they had ceased to be a holy people. They had ceased to discipline themselves, and so scandalous behavior was erupting that was causing the Gentiles to blaspheme God because of you. And so it is with even the evangelical church in the United States of America in the 1980s. We corporately as evangelicals have tolerated things in our midst that have now erupted into public scandals that are being used by the, the unbeliever as reasons why he does not need to pay any attention to Christ or his saving gospel or the life of the church. And as much as you might want to say, well, you know, we're not them, and we would never do that kind of thing. And how I thank God that I'm not like so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so that have been scandalized in the newspapers. You know your own heart. And you know that but for God's keeping, preserving care, you're capable of exactly the same things. And the fact that the Inquirer or the Washington Post hasn't caught you at it yet is just a matter of providential release, not a matter of principle. And uh, it's hard to live those things down, isn't it? I mean, uh, I, saw, I saw a used car ad by a local San Diego used car dealer the other night that used Tammy Baker, a takeoff on Tammy Baker, as the pitch for selling a car and made a laughing stock of the scandal of her life in order to get people to come on down and buy their used car. Now, if it's that far gone, we're in deep trouble as far as causing scandals. I mean, it's one thing when religious people make religious jokes about religious failures. That's bad enough. But when it becomes the common coinage of even salesmen, it takes a long time to live that down. We'll be answering for some of these public scandals for years and years to come. And if we don't learn how to practice discipline within our own midst, then there'll be more scandals to follow. And finally, I think because of the vacuum in the way of discipline that has become apparent in the church, the state, the civil magistrate, as well as the legal profession, who is always looking for someone to sue, is filling the vacuum and is going to impose a foreign accountability upon the ethics of the church in the name of doing things that are right. And again, that's an intrusion, an unlawful and ungodly intrusion, but it's an intrusion that we will not be able to resist. If the government says, if you people won't manage your financial affairs in a responsible way, we'll do it for you, we can stand back and say, no, the state has no business intruding on the affairs of the church. And in principle, that's right but you'll never be able to keep them out unless you can demonstrate an accountability, a discipline, a responsibility, an integrity that will satisfy even the unbelieving scoffer. And that means we have to learn how to discipline ourselves. People in the church are being taken to court, sued for good reasons and for bad. It's a terrible intrusion upon the integrity and the life of the church but until we learn in principle and in practice how to practice that kind of accountability and discipline within the church once again, so that we can say to the unbelieving world, there's no need for you to wash our laundry. We do it very well ourselves. And here are the clean sheets 
to prove it. And by God's grace, we can be that kind of community. Peter reminds us that the false accusations will always be there, but he says Christians individually and corporately can live in such a way that those accusations will always be demonstrably false because of our personal integrity and our walk before God faithfully. Well, in thinking about the scope of this, this is a long introduction, isn't it? Well, yeah, it is, but... You know, the doctor has to convince you why you need the medicine before you'll ever take the medicine, right? Especially if it's a shot. <laughs> so, but anyway, in talking about the scope of the series, and I put this at the end of that introduction, at the heart of what we're going to be talking about a little bit later in the week is the discipline procedure itself, how to do it as it's outlined by Jesus, especially in Matthew 18 and some other passages related to that. We're going to talk about informal steps of discipline as well as formal church discipline administered through the elders of the church. We're going to talk about church censures, what they are and what they're good for, how they should be imposed, and then talk also about restoration, how, they can be, how we can be recovered through this process. But in church discipline, just like any other element of the Christian life, attitudes are very, very important. And so we need to look at those passages that shape our attitude and our motives in the purpose of carrying out church discipline. So we're going to look at the lost sheep story that Jesus tells so that God might cultivate us in us a heart to seek and to save that which is lost. We're going to look at Jesus' warning concerning beams and specks so that we can make sure that we carry out discipline in a faithful way. And I hope that God will generate us, in us what I've called a motivational hope by helping us to catch a real vision for the promise that God has given regarding the success, the joyful success of church discipline in the restoration and recovery of the brother or sister who is straying. Now, I'm not going to say very much except incidentally about the positive side of discipline, and I want to mention this now because, you know, the preaching of the word and the teaching in Bible studies and Sunday school, every time we bring God's Word to bear on our life in instruction, that's all discipline as well. Positive discipline to show us. And we use that term. We call it discipling. Well, discipling, you know, that's a nice, warm, fuzzy word. Everybody likes that. It's the same word as discipline, except that's a bad word. People don't like that. You know, I can't figure that out. Well, anyway, you can fuzz this side and scratch this side and say, discipline, discipling, discipline, discipling, you see. Whatever, whatever. But it's all part of the same process. But the positive side of dis, uh, discipline uh, deserves a series in itself, and I'm not going to give it this week. Um, you can have me back in another eight or ten years, and we'll, we'll tackle that one. Somebody else will pick it up. But one important point that I do want you to keep in mind through this whole process is that godly discipline, faithfully and consistently done, takes more faith, more hope, and more love than to neglect it or to abuse it. Now, why do I make that point? Well, it's because I think oftentimes at least our gut attitude is the other way around. Somehow discipline is what you do when you don't have enough faith. Discipline is what you do when you've given up hope. Discipline is what you do instead of love. But you see, that's just backwards from what the Bible teaches itself. Real faith, real hope, real love always manifest themselves in faithful, pastoral, restorative discipline, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or two-and-three-on-one 
or session with an individual member or group of members or a whole congregation dealing with a straying wayward brother. That might seem backwards to you, but I hope by the end of the week it won't be. There's a marvelous call of God in the 58th chapter of Isaiah, and I've printed it for you in your outline so that you can keep it in mind. In Isaiah 58:12, the Lord gives this promise, which is also a call to challenge his people. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairers of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. God says, if you will follow me faithfully and do my will, I will make you known for your ability to repair and restore that which is broken down and shattered. Now, to my mind, in a day like our own, where every other institution in our whole culture is crumbling in ruins, if the church could increasingly become identified not as just one more broken down set of ruins, but as a place where people can go for restoration, for repair, and for healing, so that we could write over our churches, restorer, Orthodox Presbyterian Church, repairer Orthodox Presbyterian Church, that that would be a grand name for a church of Jesus Christ in our day. The destruction, the damage, the breakage is all around us, outside the church and the world as well as inside. Men need help in putting their lives back together again. And in the gospel, we have a message that restores and rebuilds. And in church discipline, we have a method that restores and rebuilds if we will use it faithfully. So in these first two messages today, you probably think you already had one, and you have. I want to tar start by talking about this matter of motivation. How will God get us going in the heart and in the life in carrying out this kind of discipline? And I sometimes talk about when you want to move a horse or something, or maybe a mule, uh, you dangle a carrot out in front of his nose, and you hit him on the rear end with a stick, a whip and a carrot. That makes things move. There's an enticement and then also a sharp correction that keeps us going. Well, maybe you can think about these first two messages as a motivational carrot and a motivational whip. We want to look first of all at the benefits of discipline as an enticement to draw us on to practice it faithfully, and then look at the command of Jesus absolutely requiring that we practice discipline to motivate us and challenge us to carry on this work that God has given us together. Let me just take a minute here, and without opening it up wide, I'll open it up a little bit if there's a question or a comment so far. I've got you fairly intimidated. That's good. That's good. See, if you work it right, you don't have to allow time for questions because you just bowl them over. Yes, but there's one. Oh, uh, well, maybe. I'm working off of two different outlines, and so I'll try to do that. But um, I hope that there will be enough in the outline that will trigger to what I'm talking about that you'll be able to follow along. But uh, if not, just go like this. <laughs> Signal for help. Okay. Yeah, I'll try to I'll keep you up. There is a correction in lesson one right off the bat. Uh, some of you may have noticed it already. Um, that first point is uh, the text is 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, not 5.6. That was a little flick of the wrist there, so you'll be in the wrong chapter. 
We all like to gain things. You know, people, people uh, are sort of capitalists under the skin. Even if they're Marxists, they're still capitalists. We want to know what's the profit? What's going to be the gain? And we are motivated to do many things by an appreciation of what it's going to do for us. That's just part of our human nature. That's not a bad thing. Um, Len said we'll call our uh, competition fellowship because I guess competition would be bad. But, you know, the Bible says to strive to win the prize. That isn't a bad motivation. And God uses that motivation often. Now, if you don't want that... Uh, push you back again, then you're going to be motivated in the other direction. You're going to desire to get rid of it. So you may throw the horseshoe game, you know, you start lobbing them clear over the pole or something like that. But we're motivated by that. There was a cute, cute scene in the movie that they made of Charlotte's Web, which uh, some of you may have seen. Some of you, if you're like us, we own the videotape, so we've seen it many, 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 many times. That's all right. It bears repeating. But there's one scene there where Charlotte, uh, in order to save Wilbur's life at the fair, you know, needs to have Wilbur, uh, uh, Charlotte needs to be able to write something in the web over this pig. So they send out Templeton, that self-serving rat, uh, to find something uh, with words on it that they can get the message. And, you know, Templeton, who is, uh, has that Paul Lynn voice, which I can't do very well, but he asks the real pertinent question. He says, what's in it for me? Before I go out there and find you a piece of newspaper, you tell me what's in it for me. What's the profit? What's to be gained? Well, then they strike right to the, to the core of his rodent heart by saying, if he gets that piece of paper, then he can go out and eat garbage at the fair all night long. Ah, rat heaven. You know, that's even better than swilling in Wilbur's trough to a rat like Templeton. Well, you're not a rat like Templeton. But very often, when you're facing a decision, you ask that same question. What's in it for me? What will be the profit? And so the Holy Spirit tells you that when we think about this matter of discipline, the profit is a great, great profit, and it is godliness with contentment. As we read in 1 Timothy 6.6, godliness with contentment is great Gain. It is very, very profitable. And that's an enticement, an incentive to us to follow after godliness. You know, God, if he could experience frustration, and I guess it depends on what you believe about the emotional life of the living God as to whether or not he can experience frustration. But if he can experience frustration, then undoubtedly he knows the same frustration that you and I know as parents especially in trying to teach children about true value. I'm not talking about the hardware store now. I'm talking about real profit, real gain, real value. You know, if you take a little child and you give them an uncirculated St. Gordon's $20 gold piece complete in its wrapper, in its hard case, and a Snickers candy bar, what do you suppose that little sweet tooth is going to go for? Well, he'll take one bite of the St. Gaudens, and he'll find out that it doesn't shoot, and it doesn't roll, and he'll say, that isn't worth anything. Give me the candy bar. Right? And to try and explain to him that that St. Gaudens represents a value that would buy him thousands of candy bars doesn't compute. As he weighs the relative values, 
He chooses that which is not valuable because it's more immediately attractive than that which is truly valuable. And from that time all the way up to adulthood, we are constantly wrestling with that question of value. What will really be valuable when we're shopping? What will really be valuable when we're investing? What will really be valuable when we're deciding how to spend our time and energy? We look to value, to gain, to profit as a motivating factor. And oftentimes we make the wrong choice. In our short-sighted, self-indulgent, consumption-oriented society, in our immaturity, we want what seems to be immediately satisfying, immediately valuable. And we are willing to forego all kinds of future benefits on the basis of that. And that's why the credit card business is so good. Because it can promise you immediate gratification and you can mortgage your future for, you know, 25 or 30 years if you keep stretching it out as long as you pay your monthly payments and you can give them 20% interest per year. What a deal. But you can have it now. And many of us as consumers make bad choices because we want it now and we'll mortgage the future for the sake of that immediate gratification. Well, we see that kind of problem in our own Christian lives, too. When you try to convince a Christian who is alone, uh, maybe a widow or a widower, maybe a divorcee, maybe a single person, that fellowship with God is more valuable than creating relationships with people that are ungodly, even though that may promise an immediate human satisfaction, and of course nearness to God is something much less tangible, much more difficult to measure, it's hard to make that choice and get them to see the benefit. If you talk to a teenage boy within the church and try and convince him that integrity of conscience before God is better than getting blasted at a party every Friday and Saturday night, he's going to very have a hard time choosing a clean conscience because he can't see its immediate value. Getting plastered, that's a lot of fun, at least for a while, until you wake up the next morning. But being part of the gang, being able to party with his friends, being able to let your hair down and do whatever you want to do, that's immediately satisfying. A good conscience before God has rewards that are much more subtle, much harder to discern, and therefore not so valuable. And you can fill in the kinds of blanks in your own life where you wrestle with choices. What is really valuable? And I'm sure God smacks himself on the head, if he had a head, and says, why won't they learn? I show them again and again and again what is really valuable, and they turn to the wood and the hay and the stubble over and over and over again. So God has a problem teaching us true value. And many of us are motivated by faulty values, by short-sighted values. It's easy to find the evil consequences of the love of money or the love of things in the church all over the place. And in this particular chapter, in verse 10, we read, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. That love for profit, that love for earthly gain or love for money is such a subtle contributing factor to so many problems that I think often we miss the connection. And tonight in the passage about that riot in Ephesus, we're going to see that under all of the high-flown philosophy and religious issues was a basic 
element of greed that precipitated that problem. It wasn't a spiritual problem, a theological problem. It was a problem with the love of money. And some are willing to even sell their faith and pierce themselves through with many griefs because of that hunger and thirst for things. And it attacks even the church. You probably wouldn't have to think very long to find examples in your own mind of the way in which the love of money, the love of things, the love of ease and comfort has afflicted the church. James says in chapter 4, verse 1, that the fights and the quarrels among those people to whom he was writing was ultimately a problem of their own envy, their own greed. They wanted and they didn't have, so they fought and squabbled until they received. They didn't even pray. They didn't have because they didn't ask. Or when they asked, they asked the miss, says James, desiring to consume these things upon their own desires. People like to use God as a means to an end. We've seen that flagrantly abused in the name it and claim it gospel of modern televangelists. All you need to do, say they, is decide what you want, and God has already gone on record as promising that you can have it. So name it and claim it. It will be yours. And people pierce themselves through with many anxieties because it doesn't always work that way. It's bad enough to suffer, for God's sake, when everybody is acknowledging that people ought to suffer. But it is devastating to suffer, for God's sake, when everybody around you is telling you that you ought to be prosperous and successful and wealthy. And not only is it material things, but sometimes it is material well-being. You have a right to be healthy. And if you are sick, the problem is in a weakness of faith. I met a woman years ago, a young widow. She'd been converted through the ministry of a charismatic church. One of the rules of thumb for that church was that if you have faith, you will be well. Her husband got cancer. He got sicker and sicker and sicker and finally died. But the worst of it was that when he died, she was put out of the church because she didn't have enough faith to make him well. You see, the twisted, perverted way in which the love of things, the love of money, the love of well-being can affect the church. The love of money, or at least the possession of money, has certainly been obvious in the recent notorious scandals that have hit the newspapers among the different televangelists in our own country. So it presses upon us this question of what is real gain? And God tells us what real gain is, and he describes it in those two terms in verse 6. Godliness and contentment. Godliness and contentment. God says you want to know what's really valuable? To be like me. That's godliness. To think the way I think. To love what I love. To hate what I hate. To do what I do. And to say what I say. To be an imitator of me. God says that's the greatest benefit, the greatest gain for a person made in the image of God. You know, the most valuable mirror that you have is that one that is cleanest, with less, least amount of dust, and with fewest scratches on the back. I mean, you may like those concave mirrors that blow your face up like this, you know, if you're looking to pluck your eyebrows. They may be valuable for a limited time, but you don't want to always look with that big nose in that mirror. That's not the best mirror you have. Right? Nor are those funhouse mirrors that make you much wider than you really are or much skinnier or taller. There's a distortion there. 
The best mirror, the most valuable mirror, is that which most accurately reflects what you really are. And you, brothers and sisters, are made by God and remade by Jesus Christ to look like him. And the most valuable thing for you is to be able to do that clearly, accurately, beautifully, without distortion, without corruption. And whatever you have to sell, whatever you have to give up, whatever you have to lose and sacrifice for the sake of being like God, it's a bargain. Now, even as I say that, I say, well, yes, but. And maybe your heart responds the same way. And that shows that we still are immature children that don't know what real value is. Godliness is great gain, says the Holy Spirit. And godliness with contentment. Psalm 73, which is a psalm which speaks about the suffering of the righteous servant of God who is faithful to the Lord, has one of the most touching and magnificent endings of any of the psalms. And many of you perhaps know it. When we think about the question of contentment, Psalm 73 gives us a wonderful expression of that in verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, for the psalmist, he says, yeah, I've been kicked around for no good reason. I have done what the Lord tells me to do, and I've been rejected by my own familiar friends. I don't know why the bad guys do better than me all the time. But as he goes to the temple and he sees things in its proper perspective, he comes back to the conclusion that if he has God, he is content. That is great gain. Godliness with contentment. And that really comes to expression in this greatest good for a creature like you and me, created in the image of God and renewed in that image by the saving work of Jesus Christ. As he says it in the last verse, verse 28, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Can you say that? When you are trying to assess value as over against relationships or possessions or reputation or influence or power, can you say it is good to be near God? That's what I would rather have than anything else. Then you know that godliness with contentment is great gain. But there's a price to pay for that kind of contentment, that kind of godliness, which is the great profit. God does not give, in this regard anyway, something for nothing. He expects something from it, not to earn it or not to merit it, but certainly to receive it in its proper way. God tells us that there's a cost, an investment that needs to be made, and that investment is discipline. And for that, we need to consider a passage in 1 Timothy. Now, uh, I think, because we're just about up to 11, I'm just going to break here a second. I'll hit this second point real quick after the break and go on into our next talk. But let me just before the couple of minutes that we have, do you have a question? And that's not just saying, gee, we're for godliness. 
we would like to be like God, but that means making decisions where something is going to be set over against godliness as the choice. Will I party or will I be godly? Will I have a boyfriend or will I be godly? Will I keep my job or will I be godly? So those are the kinds of choices. And God says, whether you can see it or not, knowing me, loving me, serving me, that's the greatest benefit, the greatest gain, the greatest profit. Let's just pray and then we'll break for a few minutes. Lord, we are children. And when it comes to making choices for the glitter and the dazzle of the immediate gratification or those more subtle and yet more profound pleasures of godliness and contentment in being near to God, we stumble very many times. And Lord, we would ask you even now to forgive us for choices that we have made, words that we have said and deeds done, which have reflected a real short-sighted approach to true values. We ask, O oh God, that you might give us a hunger and thirst to be like you, which characterized our Lord Jesus himself when he said, I delight to do thy will, O oh my God. My food and drink is to do the will of him that sent me. Lord Jesus, we know that you were never happier than when you were most clearly showing forth the majesty and the glory of your heavenly Father. And we thank you that so perfect was your obedience that you were always doing that. And we just plead for your grace and mercy to have that kind of perspective so that we will make that kind of choice over and over and over again and really enjoy the gain, the profit, the benefit of being like you and showing forth your glory. Lord, we pray that you will guide us through our conversations as we break for a few minutes and then continue to keep our hearts open and malleable in your hands as we continue to look at your word together. We look for your discipline, for your correction, and for your healing. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, and then uh, look at the second point. But God also assures us that there's a cost that has to be paid for this godliness and contentment, and specifically, it is discipline. We must be willing to undergo God's discipline in order to gain these things. If you take a look at the uh, reference there, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Oh, just time out real quick, I'm going to forget this. Um, there are a few people who are not don't have an outline at all. And if you are a family that maybe has two and could spare one, we've checked at the office. We're going to see if there's a copier here. We'll run a few more uh, copies of the outline. But just for now, if you've got two in your family, uh, okay, there's a couple. Who needs one completely? I mean, doesn't have one. Roy, who told me who it was, isn't here. He went to check. <laughs> um, does anybody need one? Well, we'll ask you for that offer again when Roy back, gets back and can tell me who it is that needs it. Uh, okay, well, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. 
So there the Holy Spirit tells us by the Apostle Paul that we must train ourselves, we must be disciplined to the practice of godliness. And the metaphor that's used is that of physical training. Physical training yields certain kinds of skills, which are valuable to a certain degree. But godliness has a value surpassing those other things because it holds a promise, or thinking about what we were talking about last hour, a, uh, has a profit, a benefit, both for the present life as well as for the life to come. Now, we're told as Southern Californians that we live in a very health-conscious, exercise-conscious culture. You know, Jane Fonda sells her workout tapes, and after she's exhausted everybody in the market on that one, then she'll make another one, and people go out and buy another one, and then she'll make one for pregnant women, and then she'll make another one for... Uh, and uh, television shows on exercise, all those kinds of things. Everybody's jogging. You probably look around here, and you're going to see people with weights on their ankles and stuff like that as they walk up and down the hill, because our culture wants to be healthy. Our culture wants to exercise and to keep in shape. Us countercultural types, however, <laughs> don't sweat it too much. Pun intended. Okay, well, anyway, so it, it, you would think that people who have that kind of orientation towards exercise, training, good health, and so forth, uh, would really be easily able to re relate to what Paul has to say. But Paul is telling us that becoming godly is like training for the Olympics. It's something that requires intense commitment that translates into discipline, training, over and over and over again. Now, some people who are training for the Olympics, you know, they're not much earthly good to anybody else for any other reason because they've got to train, 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 train. Every working, waking hour, they're running or swimming or working out on parallel bars or something else because they have this goal to be picked for the Olympic team. That's the most important thing and they must train to develop those skills. Now, Paul points out that physical training does generate those kinds of physical skills, and we know that. You think about all of the different kinds of skills that go into um, uh, the, the playing of sports, and you realize that people have to train over and over and over again. You know, the first time that you tried to make a free throw on a 10-foot basket when you were eight years old, and you wondered, how in the world did they ever get the ball all the way up there? But you got a little bit bigger, and you practiced a little bit more, and finally you could get it up there to the rim or bounce around the backstop, and then um, you got a little older, and you worked a little bit more, and lo and behold, it didn't take two hands. It only took one hand to make the shot, and you train, and you train, and you train, and you train, and pretty soon you could hit them over and over and over again. And then the coach brought the bad news. He says, you're not going to play this game all by yourself. There's going to be somebody out there up in your face all the time going like this, but you still got to shoot and make the shot. So you had to practice with a team and work and work and work. And if you watched uh, uh, the uh, NBA playoffs a few weeks back, you saw two highly trained teams that were precision units that could do things automatically. I mean, it's astonishing to me, even yet after years of watching the Lakers, to watch those guys on a fast break and they can think what the next guy is going to do two steps before he does it and throw the ball to the right place without even looking, and bingo, it's right there. Well, they didn't read a book about how to play baseball and be, or basketball and become a championship team. They may have read books, they got coaching, but they worked and worked and worked and worked and worked until those things became second nature. 
I've always been astonished at you ladies who can crack an egg with one hand. Can you do that? You know, you pick up two eggs and you hit them on the side of the bowl and you split them open and you drop the eggs right in there. Not even a single solitary little fleck of eggshell gets in the cake batter and you throw them away and you got two more. <laughs> and meanwhile, you got, you got the phone like this <laughs> and you're cracking eggs and talking on the phone. <laughs> now, my guess is that your mom didn't say, you know, you can do that. You can talk on the phone and crack two eggs at the same time. And you said, oh, yeah, good. But it took practice. And the first one, you know, you hit on the side, and, and it all dribbled down the outside of the bowl and the inside of the bowl, and the family crunched eggshells that night at dinner. But you kept working at it, kept working at it. When I was in junior high, there was an old Dutch lady who sold us hot dogs for hot lunch twice a week, and she could knit with one hand while she sold hot dogs with the other hand. She'd put one needle under her arm and hold the other needle in her hand and knit and sell hot dogs and make change. <laughs> now, you know, she may have been some unique kind of human being that had two brains and one skull, or maybe three. But my guess is that she had trained herself to that skill of knitting so that she didn't have to think about it anymore. And so she could make change. That's what she was thinking about. Or maybe it was talking over her shoulder to the other lady in the kitchen that she was really thinking about, and she automatically made change, automatically sold hot dogs, and automatically knitted with one hand. I don't know, but that is sophisticated stuff. I would never try it. Now, I admit to being out of it a little bit, but when I saw Back to the Future and saw the first time that uh, Michael Fox stepped on the back of the skateboard and it leaped up into his hand, I thought, now that's a cute trick. I wonder how long he had to work on that. And then I saw some professional or semi-professional skateboarders doing their thing, and I thought, oh, my word. What training, what skill. But it takes practice and practice and skin knees and torn Levi's and practice and practice and bruised hands and elbows and practice and practice, but those skills come. And many of us have learned skills. All of us who drive cars can at least do things automatically in driving cars that we had to think about so carefully when we first did it. Where is reverse on this thing anyway? I know it's around here someplace. Oh, yeah, there it is. Oh, clutch, clutch, need the clutch. Good, right. Yeah. Now, rear view mirror. Yes, and hold on to the steering wheel. Now, how can I get this car out of the driveway? But you practice, and you practice, and pretty soon you can hit reverse every time without grinding. And you can back out of the driveway with a glance in the rearview mirror. And then you can carry on a conversation with somebody while you're doing all those things automatically. So we can train ourselves to develop certain kinds of skills. And Paul says, because I think he was a sports fan, among other things, that that kind of physical training is really good. He wasn't a pietist who says, don't waste your time learning how to throw free throws. Do something else. He says they have a limited value. But the kinds of skills that he is commending are the kinds of habits of godliness and faithfulness and obedience which have much, much more profit for the people of God. And we need to develop those kinds of skills Skills of seeing things the way God sees them, having a perspective where we can evaluate situations or understand choices or see the 
outworkings of a decision in the light of God's word so that we make good choices and put things together. Skills of being able to answer softly so as to turn away wrath when by nature chewing somebody's head off comes very easy to you. Developing skills at not lying or evading the truth, but rather speaking the truth in love. All of the ethical demands of the law of God must be translated into skills so that righteousness, godliness, becomes second nature to us, just like shooting a fallaway jump shot or a skyhook has become second nature to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He does it automatically. When a certain situation arises on the basketball court, he knows instinctively that this is the time for the skyhook, and he does it, and bingo, he hits it over and over and over again. Well, you know, like the training of any kind of skill, if you're going to be godly and you're a sinner, you have to start by realizing that usually you do it the wrong way, and then I better not do it this way, I have to do it this way, this is the right way, and then you practice it, practice it, practice it. But if you've grown in godliness at all, you know that there are some things that by the grace of God you do automatically now that you didn't used to do. I never thought I would become punctual. And I uh, flub it occasionally still. But I used to be chronically. Is anybody expecting a special revelation? you very much. Anyway, I used to be chronically late for everything, even things I enjoyed doing, like eating. But God used my wife, who was much more amenable to punctuality, to keep at me until I learned to be places on time, and sometimes even early, consistently early. Now, I'd like to reassure you that I'm going to work on the other end of things, but I'm not, I'm not convicted about that yet. <laughs> Start on time, end on time, right? No, no. Start on time and end whenever you get finished. That's the way it goes. Sorry. But you train yourself to godliness so that you can do instinctively and automatically what God tells you you ought to do rather than responding by the habits of the old way. Now, you know, there's a problem in the Christian life. I think most of us would say we know what we ought to do. We've read the Bible enough, we've learned the Ten Commandments, we've sat under preaching and Sunday school teaching and Bible studies long enough that if we said, we know what God tells us we should do. We know that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. That's not a problem. We are not ignorant. But oftentimes, putting those things into practice is where we fall down. We have the problem that the people to whom Hebrews 5 was written had. We have much to say about this, says the writer to the Hebrews, but it's hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good and evil. The writer there is telling the people, I have some more things I'd like to teach you about the doctrine of Christ. Wonderful things, glorious things, magnificent things, but you can't learn them yet 
because you haven't put what you already know into practice. You haven't trained yourself to live in light of what you've already learned, so as a consequence, there's no point in heaping more information on you. I've often thought that this uh, makes Bible study kind of like mining for gold, at least some kinds of mining for gold. And we lived up in the gold country in Sonora when I was pastoring the church up there. We'd go on tour mines every now and again. And, you know, when those miners would go down and, and sink a shaft, they'd have to go in and drill a bunch of holes uh, in the end of that shaft, and then they'd put their charges in, and then they'd get out of the hole and blow it all up. And then the, the, the uh, passageway would be filled with rubble. So they'd go down there with their carts, and they'd load all of that rubble up, and they'd pull the ore out and send it to the processor, and then go back in, drill more holes, blow out more rubble, and out they came. And if they left what they had just dynamited in the shaft, they could never go any deeper. They could never get into, set more charges, and move that shaft down farther. And I think a lot of times that's the way we are in our use of the Word of God. We study, and we get out the commentaries, and we look at our concordances, or we listen to sermons, or tapes and Bible studies, and we read and read and read and read until the, uh, until the channel is filled with information. And then we say, well, good, I learned all that stuff. But we never move it. We never do anything with it. We don't ever become accustomed to its use. And so our Bible study just sort of flattens out. And, you know, you look at churches, and you see people that grew to a certain point in their sanctification, and then they sort of plateau and they stayed right there. And others grew a little higher, and others grew a little lower, but they all... Why should that happen? Is it because we learned everything that the Bible had to say and there was nothing more to learn? No, that's not it. And yet we do find the freshness, the challenge, the vitality, the fruitfulness going out of our Christian life and our study of God's Word. And I'm convinced it's because of what Hebrews 5 is saying. We don't do anything or don't do enough with what we've learned to put it into practice so that we can get the uh, tunnel clear and set some more charges and go deeper. It's not an intellectual problem. It's an ethical problem. It's a spiritual problem. So we know God's will, and yet oftentimes we fail to perform it like we should. Many times we find ourselves content to be godly sometimes, maybe even most of the time. But I wonder if that really satisfies you. What would you think of an athlete, you know, if you're an avid baseball fan like I am, even when the Dodgers were losing the last two years all the time, it always encouraged me to hear Tommy Lasorda say he wasn't planning it that way. He really wanted to win all the time. If he'd have come on someday and said, well, listen, we're winning half of our games, we're winning some of the time, that's good enough. And I said, Tommy, I'm not going to follow a team that is content to lose and be satisfied. Now, that's a baseball team. How would you like to go to a doctor? A brain surgeon that likes to be successful in surgery most of the time. So as they're shaving their head, you're trying to decide, is this one of the times when he's going to be... You wouldn't think much of a doctor that was content to get his job done some of the time. Well, then how do you suppose God feels when he hears you say in your heart of hearts, I'm willing to be holy some of the time. Or even when you get really spiritual and you say, I'm willing to be holy most of the time. When he says, I want you to be holy all of the time, and to make that your life goal and to discipline yourself to that kind of consistent godliness. You know, it's very true that none of us are going to be perfect in this life. 
But the sad thing is that we have made that then translate in our life into being content not to be perfect in this life. When Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, that's your goal, that's your desire, that's what you're striving and training yourself for. It was disappointing during the Winter Olympics to see some of those women's figure skaters who were there in the finals, you know, and there were the two that were coming down right to the wire and thinking, boy, they trained for years and years and years and years. And then when the uh, one gal slipped and stumbled in her final uh, uh, routine, and your, your heart just broke because you saw she has to come in second now. And that's not going to be satisfying. If you would have said to her before, is everybody going to win this tournament? She'd say, no, only one. And I hope it's me. But she had devoted her life to win. And she trained herself that way. And the fact that we can sin and fail God and so casually slough it off and say, well, nobody's perfect, really shows that our desire is not there. If we were set to please God and to train ourselves for godliness all the time, then our sins would be as disappointing to us as losing a basketball championship was to the team that lost or, or a baseball pennant. And yet oftentimes we don't approach it that way at all. Paul says, I always run to win. I am committed to succeed in reaching the goal of godliness as much as it is possible. Did he believe in perfectionism? No, but he did believe in discipline to godliness. He tells us what his own practice was in the ninth chapter of 1 Corinthians do you not know, says verse 24, that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. He says, don't run to come in second. Don't run to come in third. Don't run to not finish the race. Run to win. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself may not be disqualified for the prize. He did not want to lose the race of faith. And how grand his closing life's testimony was to Timothy. I have run the race. I have kept the faith. I have finished my course. That wasn't just for Paul. That was for you. If you set that goal and you train yourself for that kind of godliness, then you can come to your dying day and say, I have finished the race. I have won what God has called me to win. And we need to address ourselves to that kind of discipline because, as Paul said, as we already noticed in 1 Timothy chapter 4, the Olympic Games or the NBA Championships or the World Series, as glorious as those might be, are just temporal and transient victories. But gaining godliness and contentment, that gain has eternal value, for it profits both for this life and for the life which is to come. Now, God's discipline comes to us in many forms. Sometimes he personally, directly disciplines us through his providential dealing with us. Sometimes discipline comes in terms of self-discipline, self-control, and that is a very important part of God's discipline. But also, and perhaps very frequently, 
God's discipline comes to us mediated through other believers and through the church. And that's what we're highlighting in our study together of discipline within the local church. It is that ministry of discipline that God brings to us through our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. But the goal of that discipline, like every other discipline, is that we might gain godliness with contentment and that eternal prosperity that that represents. So I hope you'll think and have been thinking carefully about your own life. Are you content with short-term profits? Are you happy enough to be godly some of the time? If you win, maybe, is that good enough? Or are you willing to make a commitment to true gain, to godliness with contentment, and then to pay the price? It takes maturity. We have to grow up. We have to be willing to count the cost and then pay the cost in discipline. But as the hymn reminds us, there's no other way for us to truly be happy in Jesus but to trust him and to obey him under that kind of discipline that we might grow in our fruitfulness. And God didn't create the program so that it could fail. He created it so that we may be like him and glorify him in our lives. Well, let's go on to lesson two, um, and I'll try and give you a minute uh, to ask questions at the end. I said this was the whip side of the carrot and the whip.